0: Hello and welcome back to Sounding It Out, a podcast dedicated to audiology, brought to you by Signia UK and Ireland. I'm Julia Van Hastien, your host and head of audiology at Signia. This is the third episode of a mini-series about the wax management crisis we are facing here in the UK. In 2019, the British Medical Association decided it would no longer be considered part of the core services GPs were obliged to provide. This has created a postcode lottery for patients suffering from earwax. We've already spoken to the RNID or the Royal National Institute for deaf people about their concerns. If you missed that conversation, you can go back and listen for free, wherever you get your podcasts. We are also speaking to people in the profession who have come up with some innovative solutions. Last time I spoke to Mark Newman, head of audiology at the Barking Havering and Redbridge university trust. He has managed to form an agreement with the CCG to fund their earwax management through reimbursement, which allows Mark's Trust to have a full audiology-led wax care pathway. So sometimes you need to do a little bit of manoeuvring and ensure you're in the right meetings with the right people in order to make effective change. If you missed the conversation, you can go back and listen for free. My guest today is Nicola Phillips, who is the Principal Clinical Scientist and Head of Primary Care Audiology at Swansea Bay University Health Board. Nicola, hello. Hello, thank you for having me, Julia. So my first um, question to you really is about paper that you co-authored very recently and that has been published in the BMJ or as it used to be called the British Medical Journal. That's so exciting and congratulations. I'm really pleased for you and, and this paper uh, details a trial that you've been running at the U- University Health Board. Can you please give our audience an overview of this paper
1: yeah, thank you, Julia. We are delighted to get the first ever primary care audiology publication, and myself, myself and the team are very delighted about that. The title of the article is Approved on Healthcare and Practice: an integration of audiology services into primary care. So back in 2016, delivering audiology in a primary care setting was set up as a pilot project within the Health Board. The main aim of the service being enabling patients with hearing tinnitus or wax problems to be triaged directly to audiology, acting as the first point of contact. And it greatly benefits the patients as they are seeing specialists in urine hearing, hearing care within a matter of weeks, whilst also free up important time for GP and practice nurses, um, and reducing the amount of referrals being sent to ENT and secondary care, which, as we know, is, is very costly.
0: Thank you very much for that um, Nicola. So I was actually lucky enough to come and observe this primary care approach in person a month ago or so and although the service runs like a a well-oiled machine for the most part it has taken as you say a long time to get to this point. I think you mentioned the start date being 2016. In your opinion why do you think it has taken this long?
1: So I think you know delivering an audiology service within primary care had never been done before so we needed to firstly research primary care activity and then start collecting as much data as we possibly could because at that time there's no data around for us to work with. So we began the project in two out of the eight GP clusters. Uh, this enabled us to audit the service to access its true potential before expanding to further clusters. Once we had the information we needed, we began to expand the remaining clusters. The main challenges, I feel, were you know highlighting the service and an audiologist being the best person for patients to see at the first point of contact. We needed to educate patients into accessing new healthcare pathways. Uh, patients had always seen a doctor, and you know, initially they didn't like the thought of seeing anyone else. So I think getting that message out to patients and educating them in these new patient pathways it was really important. I think still is important. We've worked really hard with our commons teams in the health board. We've done some you know publications in local newspapers, websites, you know, Facebook pages, you know, things like that. It's just to ed- educate the patients in the new way to access services. Um I think recruiting staff as well and training staff was another challenge. Takes a lot of forward thinking and planning. And um, departments really need to start training staff to take on these roles years in advance. Um, and that, that's that's what we did. Uh, we, we started thinking about this progression. Then, sort of, you know, back in 2016, you have to train the staff over the period of time. And, you know, it, it is very timely. The biggest challenge, though, I think, was acquiring improvement funding. Uh, this was a very challenging process, indeed. Uh, There are lots of board meetings to get these kinds of things passed through the health board. Again, forward thinking is a must. Uh, Collaborative working using primary care and secondary care funding is how our permanent funding was achieved in June of this year. So I think it's just having that little... You know, thinking out of the box approach where you know where you where you service in secondary care and primary care you know utilize that um, that knowledge of both parts of the health board and um you know sort of really think about how you can achieve the funding from different pots. so you don't have to achieve the funding from one pot it can come from different pots and then all together you, you know you can achieve the funding so that's something that's worked really well in our health board. I'm not saying that would work for everybody, but it is it is something that's worked really well for us.
0: Wow, that's a very comprehensive answer. Thank you so much, Nicola. And so many angles that um, you would have to consider if you wanted to to align with the approach that that you and your trust have followed. Certainly some angles I didn't think about was the the patient's response and how you had to re-educate them about accessing services not directly from their GPs. That wasn't something I thought about before and a really interesting point. Um, My next question is around the pilot project that you actually um, have just mentioned in your previous answer. How important do you think a pilot project is in terms of being successful? So do you think this is a vital first step for other trusts to consider if they wanted to have a primary care approach? Or do you think they could simply build on the pilot that yourselves did and maybe just putting together a strong business case purely based on numbers is good enough evidence?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, for us it was important because as I said, it was the first time it had ever happened. There was no previous data available. You know, we were the first audiology department to deliver an actual wax removal service and first point of contact service. We had no numbers or data to go on, so we had to collect as much information as we could. And um, I can remember auditing spreadsheets upon spreadsheets and just, you know. Uh, looking at it for hours you know uh, collecting data in the beginning but you know it has been done now we are one of the departments which are leading the way in primary care audiology with our colleagues up in north Wales as well and you know we are happy to give any help and advice and support to our colleagues nationally in setting up the services I think that's something that we are really sort of proud to be an example of I think it's good to know that every area will be different, you know, geographically. Some areas are much bigger and more spread apart, which may offer more challenges in setting up geography services in primary care. But certainly, um, you know, we're happy to give any help or advice and provide any, you know, help with data collection wherever we can for our call for our national colleagues.
0: Wow, what a fantastic offer. And I hope that our listeners will indeed take you up on that because, you've gone through this experience with some really rich information and and help that you can share with anybody that's thinking about approaching um, wax removal or wax management um, in a primary care fashion like you have. You made me smile when you were talking about the spreadsheets because it's it's something that I certainly don't have much interest in, but it's absolutely necessary when you do a pilot project like this. So yeah, well done you for persevering. You mentioned um, earlier that you ended, I think the previous question with that the greatest barrier really was acquiring permanent funding. And I understand having an NHS background myself How big a barrier this can be when you start up something new. So for our listeners sake, which parties are important to involve in this process of getting funding? Who are the key stakeholders that you can approach right from the start and that you should should think about? And what's the right approach? Is an email okay? Is a phone call okay? Is attending a GP meeting okay? You know, what are, what are the different types of things that we need to consider when we are looking for acquiring permanent funding?
1: And I know, I think this will differ in different health boards, but speaking from our experience, our funding is based on funding from both secondary care and primary care. The clusters, the GP clusters support the service as well as the health board. And this has worked well for us. So how they will be individual in the health board, um, what would be the most appropriate way of funding? I think... You know, we um, set up from the, from the beginning. We so sort of went with a very that sort of we wanted to gain a very good rapport with our with our GPs, with our cluster leads, um, with our practice managers. I think that's paramount in any primary care service because without them on board, you're going to really struggle in booking in patients, again, service up and running, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. You know, there's so much that they need to help us with. So it's very collaborative working. And once you've get, got them on board, um, you, you do work together. And once you're doing a pilot project, they see the benefits. They see how that's benefiting their GP time. And they see how it's benefiting the patients. And therefore, they're much more likely to look at funding. So we asked our clusters, every GP cluster, for some funding. And then um, our health board, the secondary care section, sort of met some funding as well. So, yeah, we had it coming from a few different parts. But I think it worked really well. And I think it is... Um, a good example of acquiring the funding you know so so yes that, that that's our experience I think meetings and um, any GP cluster meetings I think any you know emails it's always good to send emails because there's an email trail but yeah attending meetings face-to-face and speaking with cluster leads face-to-face or whether it be teams meetings now that's always good as well because I think you know, that that's where the reports really build up with your colleagues mm. Wow, just
0: uh, from that answer there, you know, you mentioned earlier forward thinking and the angles that you considered in order to get this funding and working with the GPs and you know securing some funding from secondary care as well. Just, just make me think, almost the cliche saying of "don't take no for an answer." You know, if there's a will, there's a way. So again, you know, well done you and your trust. So my next question is, I'm just trying to form a picture here of the the setup that you've got within your trust in terms of the audiology department. So obviously you run the, the primary care side of things, the secondary, side of, secondary care side of things. How is all it spread in terms of audiologists? You know, how, what is the setup and the locations that the department functions within?
1: Yes, all in all, we have approximately 40 staff, um, that's including some admin staff as well. We have two main hospital locations and three further outreach clinics for secondary care activity. And then the primary care service runs over seven further primary care locations. Uh, Fifteen of the 40 staff make up the primary care audiology team. Um, So... It is, you know, it, it is a nice working mix. All the primary care audiology team also do a day or two, maybe in secondary care as well. So, I think from a, you know, from a career aspect, it is a nice way of working. People tend to enjoy it. Um, but yeah, so it, there's, there's a lot of sites though. So, a lot of sites means a lot of clinics, um, a lot of clinics means a lot of equipment. So um, it is hard to keep on top of equipment calibration, what's where what, what do we need what stock So it has those challenges but um, you know we do tend to like, try and keep on top of it uh, as much as we can.
0: Okay so uh, quite a big department with a widespread Um working very well together. You also mentioned in your answer about recruiting staff, because this was a completely new setup. Did you have to create completely new positions for the primary care settings? Um, and then also alongside with that, how did the staff respond to this primary care setup? And then also going along with that, whilst we're talking about staff, I guess you mentioned you know needing certain qualifications. So does it mean that in order to be able to perform wax management, for example, in a primary care, you need to be a certain band. So I guess this question is about recruiting staff. What are the qualifications for being in those positions and how did the staff respond to this new setup?
1: Yes. So we did have to create some new positions and these were all included in our business case. Uh, the staff are all very positive, and it does create new positions. and has enabled some members' staff to be promoted. So it's excellent to see you know these staff progress, and it's it's lovely that they've been with us for many years and progress through through the bands. Our associates carry out the wax removal. These are generally band fours. So However, we do have a couple of band fives carrying out wax removal, and then all the complex wax removal is carried out by advanced practitioners who are band seven or eight. So our service is run with what we um call a parallel working model where you've got an associate practitioner band four or five working alongside an advanced practitioner a band seven or eight and um, they really complement each other and um, that's quite cost effective as well obviously running the wax over service because a band four can't um work alone. So if you were running standalone wax clinics um you'd have to employ band fives to do that. But the way our model is set up is quite cost effective. As a band four can can work alongside one of the advanced practitioners, so and um, it works really, really really well as as the parallel working model.
0: Mm. No, it sounds um, as you say, it sounds like a, a really good way of um, giving people the opportunity to come into new positions, giving people the opportunities to to be able to progress, and also as you say. Um, having a, a cost effective setup, which is also you know bringing it back to the funding that we talked about earlier. The more cost effective the the model that you run, the more uh, likely it is that you will acquire funding for this type of approach. The next one then is about the patients really how do patients access this audiology? whether primary care or secondary care in your trust. So if you maybe can talk us through a typical audiology patient pathway, so maybe when somebody sees their GP or maybe not even seeing the GP, what the likely outcomes are and you know how they would end up in either primary care or secondary care in the first instance.
1: Um, yes, yeah, so all our patients access primary care audiology through their GP surgeries. Um, in some practices, patients get triaged by the receptionist and booked directly into audiology slots or the wax removal slots. Um, in other practices, GPs will triage over the phone and then book them directly into clinics using a shared booking system. So, I think that's something else really to note as well is is the booking system of these patients, which can be quite tricky. You do have to have a shared booking system with your GP practices. There are a few different ways of doing that. We generally work from the Vision 360, which is what our GP um, practices work on. And we've got our shared booking system then where they can access the booking and we can access the booking and the patient files and um, of write up a little journal on the patient as well. So I think IT is quite a big thing to bear in mind when you're setting up these clinics as well. So you do need to have, have a booking system for, for the patient that everyone can access. Um, patients will attend their audiology appointment. Then, after being booked in, uh, they will be assessed for their reported issues, whether that be for routine wax removal, which will be carried out in a wax removal clinic, or an asymmetrical pathology, which may be dealt with in an advanced practice clinic, um, where all diagnostic testing is, is available. Once the patient's testing has been completed, the patient will be appropriately managed by the advanced practitioner. Um, So, if the patient hasn't been discharged, any onward referrals to ENT or radiology for MRI scans would be managed by the advanced practitioner, along with any hearing aid or tinnitus referrals then to secondary care audiology. So, the pathway um, reduced weight in less than weight time for patients, you know, many months, really, because before we were there, these patients would, you know, really be be seen in ENT before us for any um, asymmetrical pathologies and for any MRI scans. So, you know, sitting on a ENT waiting list for many months has dramatically reduced that wait time now for the patient because we are referring them for MRI scans. And then by the time they get to see the, you know, they only see the ENT consultant if they need to then, if anything has come up on the scan. And when they get to see the ENT consultant, they're seeing them there with full diagnostic testing an audiogram, tympanogram, any wax has been removed. Um, And obviously their MRI results as well. So it's a much better pathway for the patient and for um, our our ENT colleagues as well.
0: So Nicola, we've talked a lot about the way that you went about getting the service set up. We've talked about the audiologist's response um, and the GP's response too. What was the patient's response to this new service delivery model?
1: Um, initially, patients were unsure as they were expecting to see a doctor, but they quickly realised audiologists are the right people to see for their ear and hearing problems. Uh, patients always get very high scores in any PROMs or PREMs, and no outcome measures and experience measures um, that, that we collect. Uh, we carry those out now on a regular basis. We also ordered the service regularly to, see, uh, you know, to ensure the patient's needs and the aims of the service continue to be met. I think any opportunity in educating patients, like I mentioned earlier, in the new way of working in the NHS is really useful and seeing healthcare practitioners in primary care rather than a GP is becoming far more common. And I think it's really, really important to um, get that message across to patients as well for their expectations.
0: Mm -hmm. So really positive from the patient perspective too. Yeah. Which wax removal tools do you and your department have in your toolbox and when would you select a certain tool over another one
1: yeah so obviously our main go-to in our wax removal clinics are micro suction i mean because obviously with micro suction it doesn't matter the depth of the wax it is very successful so that is our our main go-to but obviously we have got some manual tools such as crocs hooks and now we use we are um, using ua pro as well That's, that's in our toolbox. But no, it's depending on the type of wax and the depth of the wax. We will decide and what what's best to use.
0: So a, a very comprehensive toolbox then. You mentioned Eos Pro very briefly then, and this will be my last question actually for you. I know that your team have been collecting some data around the tool, around how long it takes, around the type of wax, around how successful it has been. I think there's some data on on safety. Can you please highlight some of the the takeaway messages from the data that you and your team have been collecting regarding EarWays Pro?
1: Yeah, I think I think the main take or message that myself and the team would 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 agree on is um, it can be a very useful tool. Uh, it works better with harder wax, which is in the outer part of the canal. It's very quick, very effective, taking only seconds. Patients didn't report any discomfort in the evaluation. It, unfortunately it's not so useful on soft wax or wax which is deep in the ear canal so that's why obviously like micro section it is better for, the, for, the, for those patients but it is nice to have the earways pro there for the type of wax that it is you know it does work well on it does save a lot of time so so yeah it, it's we are really happy to have it in it in whole box.
0: and like you say thankfully that the team that um that performed the the earwax um removal they are fully trained and qualified and experienced and then identifying the right type of wax for the right tool is of course something that they excel in so thank you so much my um you know my thanks to you nicola for sharing your experiences and your expertise i have learned a lot and so has our audience too there's lots of food for thought and of course inspiration and ideas you, um, you said earlier that you are happy to talk to people about your approach and to give some advice. So if you wanted to reach out to Nicola, you can, can get in touch by email on nicola.phillips at wales.nhs.uk. Nicola, once again, thank you to you so much.
1: Uh, thank you, Julia. Thank you for inviting us um, and say myself and the team are, you know, more than happy sharing the experiences. And, uh, you know, we, we really are thankful for the opportunity that you've given us today to um, showcase our service. So thank you.
0: In the next episode, I'll be speaking to Nora McDonald, who is the Acting Adult Lead Audiologist at South Eastern Health and Social Care Trust. She'll be talking about using the Earwaste Pro tool a little bit more. It's very empowering to be able to say, oh, well, we actually have this tool that we could try. And when it's successful, oh, it really is fantastic. I, mean, I usually get excited when I see a thick, smooth, completely occluding plug of darker brown wax that almost hits you in the face when you do a <laughs> I'll end by reminding our listeners of the RNID's campaign priorities, and that is firstly for earwax removal services to be brought back into primary care or community settings. Secondly, for the Department of Health and Social Care, NHS England and local health bodies to explore new models for delivering earwax removal services to make sure people can access timely and appropriate treatment. And thirdly, for the NHS to publish clear information on how people can manage earwax build-up themselves at home. If you found any of what you've heard today helpful, please tell your colleagues so as many people as possible can share the knowledge. And if there's a topic you think we should be covering, drop us an email to the address on the show page. And remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. This is a Fresh Air production for Signia UK and Ireland. Until next time, goodbye.